Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. After a wave of protests this past weekend in which almost two million people took to the streets of Hong Kong, the Special Administrative Region's chief executive, Carrie Lam, announced yesterday that the controversial extradition bill would be indefinitely delayed but not canceled. The bill would enable Hong Kong to extradite citizens to territories it does not have a prior agreement with, and critics argue it would make it easier for China to cart off dissenting Hong Kongers to the mainland for punishment. Justin C. is incoming professor of humanities at Singapore Management University, and he's been following events closely and is here with us to update us on developments in Hong Kong. Justin, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So, Justin, last time we checked in on this, it looked like despite mass mobilization, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, and the pro-Beijing faction in Hong Kong's legislative committee weren't going to back down. So what changed? What appears to have happened is that Carrie Lam has had a talking to by both the pro-Beijing lawmakers as well as uh, people on the mainland. And it seems that there was a quick reversal, of course, around Saturday or Sunday, in which she said that she would suspend the bill indefinitely. Uh, That hasn't satisfied the protesters. The protesters want the bill withdrawn, and that is a very significant difference. So the infighting is still continuing on the sort of pro-establishment side, as we call it. So, Justin, where does Beijing fit into this? Have they openly supported the bill, and uh, where do they stand on the delay? Now, there's a lot of rumors that have been going on. And one of these rumors is that the extradition bill was actually Carrie Lam's idea. And what that means is that it's something that would be nice for Beijing to have passed, but it's not something that they were pushing for necessarily, according to this thread of speculation. So let me ask you about that. So this was not necessarily Beijing um, sort of coming down on Carrie Lam and demanding this or pressuring her. This is Carrie Lam trying to curry favor with Beijing by initiating this herself? Yeah. So, you know, as I sort of watched these developments, I, I thought, huh, this is interesting. It's not Beijing as the main actor here. It's someone trying to be Beijing. Mm. So, Justin, you've observed protests like these. You closely followed the umbrella movement in um, Hong Kong. So, Do you see this as the beginning of something new, or do you see this as sort of a continuation of what's happened in the past? You have some protest, and then you have um, some attention being paid, but then Beijing plays the long game, and then eventually it peters out, and then we're back to um, where we were before. That's an interesting way of putting it, because basically that framework sort of positions Beijing as the main actor. And oftentimes when we talk to people about Hong Kong, that's sort of the assumption that Beijing plays the long game and Hong Kong people are sort of stuck. Um, I would much prefer to look at the Hong Kong protests as one article that I saw uh, somewhere online in this plethora of articles that I've been reading, that the Hong Kong protests are part of a long tradition of protest in Hong Kong. So it's an organic movement of Hong Kong people doing what Hong Kong people have been doing for at least 50 years, if not 100 years. And that is to protest injustices from a government that they find to be colonial, whether it was the British, whether it's the Chinese, or whether it's, in one case in 1978, during the Golden Jubilee incident, whether it was the Catholic Church. Um, So Hong Kong people have a tradition of protesting and coming out in large numbers against 
colonial institutions that they find to be cramping their agency as Hong Kongers. Justin C. is incoming professor of humanities at Singapore Management University, and he's been following events closely in Hong Kong uh, as there have been mass protests over an extradition bill that is seen to favor the Chinese government. And it's Juneteenth, and coming up next, we're going to have a conversation about that holiday that has to do with when the announcement was made about the emancipation of the slaves. And then we're going to have a conversation about modern times and slavery that's going on right now with black people in Africa. Stay tuned. So let's expand a little bit, Justin, on this topic of identity that you're speaking about. Hmm. Um, What does it mean to be a Hong Konger today as opposed to 25 years ago or pre-1997 after the handover from the British? That's also a very good question. The term Hong Konger, um, or in Cantonese, Hong Kongian, literally Hong Kong person, uh, came into vogue around the 1970s to differentiate people in Hong Kong from the mainland. At that time, the mainland was undergoing the Great Cultural Revolution, and therefore there was a differentiation between the urbanized people of Hong Kong who spoke Cantonese and the people they perceived to be peasants uh, who spoke Mandarin in China. This sort of thing has evolved after the handover. In around 2006, there were a number of what were called localist protests on the part of young people, what Hong Kong people called the post-80s generation, Mm. to preserve Hong Kong heritage. And of course, this Hong Kong heritage is sort of a mixed bag between British colonial architecture and sort of street scenes of Cantonese life in Hong Kong that were under threat of being demolished by the government. And I think around that time, this understanding of Hong Kong person began to change. It began to be much less about being, quote-unquote, civilized as sort of a Cantonese urban elite, and much more about seeing Hong Kong as a home, a local place where one could grow up and one could have a life and one could have a family, and that that way of life was under threat from gentrification and from the transformation of Hong Kong into an international financial center. So then would Beijing make an argument then that there are elements of the Cultural (laughs) Revolution that would appeal to these disenfranchised, disenchanted people who uh, push back against the uh, colonialist, uh, hyper-capitalist vision of Hong Kong? That's another very good question, because the Cultural Revolution seems to have fallen into disfavor on the mainland, uh, because the whole point of the reforms into Chinese market socialism was to do away with the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. And one of the narratives that's often forgotten in the United States when we talk about Tiananmen in 1989 is also that the protesters there in Beijing in 1989 saw themselves as part of a, like a second wave of the Cultural Revolution, and that was quite violently repressed. So I don't really see Beijing making this argument. On the same token, I don't see Hong Kong people making this argument. This argument would be made by somebody who's observing these protests from a distance and saying, ha, that's interesting. But to make that argument from the perspective of a Hong Kong person would be very difficult, I would say, because part of 
what it means to protest against China is to protest against this hegemon that's threatening their way of life, which means that they wouldn't want to really be associated with it either. So, Justin, you have these protesters in the streets, and um, it's got international attention. First of all, do you feel like there's been enough international pressure being brought to bear on the situation? And how do you think this is going to turn out? Well, there has been plenty of international pressure brought onto the situation. The European Union has come out against it. Uh, various bipartisan politicians in the United States have supported the protesters. Uh, Christia Freeland in Canada has also supported the protesters. And so there's been quite a bit of international pressure to recognize that these protesters have freedom of speech and assembly and the right to voice their concerns about their home. How is this going to turn out? I don't like to predict the future, but I do see a lot of infighting in the pro-Beijing camp. And so as long as the protesters don't start, you know, on their own sort of infighting, I think this could possibly turn out well. Um, there's a little bit of a debate among the protesters about who represents the protests. And uh, here what I also have to say is that me being on this show uh, means that I don't represent anybody. It's basically me observing what's going on on the streets. And that's a very important thing to say, because one of the things that's a point of nervousness on the streets is the question of who represents the protest. The answer to that is that no one does. It is an organic movement of Hong Kong people. Justin C. is incoming professor of humanities at Singapore Management University. So Justin, you are formerly a professor of Asian studies at Northwestern University, and you are departing Chicago today for your new position in Singapore. Talk about what you're going to be doing down there and about your experience here in Chicago. Thanks, Steve. Yes, I'm incoming assistant professor in humanities education at Singapore Management University. And what that means is that I'm part of a group of people who's going to be rolling out what the university calls the core curriculum to the students there. Every student there, whether they're in business or tech or law, etc., will be required to take our classes, which are sort of a broad-based humanities and social science sort of formation program. And so every year there's a different course theme that is rolled out through the core curriculum. And this year the course theme is happiness and suffering. So we will be considering philosophical uh, social scientific, uh, psychological, and even theological understandings of these concepts of happiness and suffering. Yeah, so that's what I'll be doing uh, in Singapore, yeah. Well, Justin, you've been our, one of our go-to people when it comes to the issues of um, justice and inclusion and social protest movements and the, the intersection of these issues across race and class. And uh, we thank you so much for um, always being a resource for Worldview, and uh, we hope to keep in touch with you. Yes, I hope to keep in touch as well. Justin C. is incoming assistant professor of humanities at Singapore Management University, and we've been talking about the Hong Kong protests. Thanks so much, Justin. Yeah, thanks, Steve.
This is Worldview. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And happy Emancipation Day. Today is Juneteenth. For those of you unaware, it's the holiday commemorating the day when Union soldiers landed at Galveston, Texas, to tell black people that the Civil War was over, which meant they were no longer slaves. The problem is that the news got to them two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery slavery formally ended in the U.S. that day, June 19, 1865. But would it surprise you to know that black people are still enslaved today? in other parts of the world. Mauritania formally abolished slavery in 1981, but the practice continues. A couple of members of the Chicago-based Abolition Institute are here to talk about slavery in Northwest Africa. Sean Tenner is the co-founder of Abolition Institute, and they work with escaped slaves and also support organizations that are doing the work in Mauritania. And with Sean is Judge Anthony Simpkins. He's a board member of Ab- at Abolition Institute. And thank you both for joining us. Welcome to Worldview. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first, um, Sean, why don't you just tell us, give us a quick history about slavery in Mauritania, because there's an interesting racial subtext to this topic. Well, absolutely. Um, Slavery in Mauritania is absolutely interwoven with a long history of of racism, discrimination, and oppression against darker-skinned people. Um, Going back several centuries, in fact, many of the families... um, that were enslaved uh, when uh, peoples from the, uh, uh, the east came in and uh, invaded what is now known as Mauritania um, are still serving the families um, that, uh, that, that took over during that time. Um, you know, in general terms, there's a, uh, a white Moor elite in the country, about 20% of the population that has almost all of the social, economic, and political power. Mm. Um, they are able, through the use of this power, to to really dominate and subjugate um, the other racial uh, racial and ethnic groups in the country. And you know, having been to Mauritania myself, I have seen um, you know the level of, of of racism in the country. And you know, it, it's always seemed to us you know very analogous to uh, you know what we saw in, in uh, uh, Zimbabwe when it was Rhodesia and, and in South Africa, where. You know, a group by virtue of having more money and uh, access to military and uh, economic control can really can really dominate everything that everything that happens in the country. Sure. So let's make some comparisons. This is Juneteenth, June 19th, and um, some 154 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. um, You have this situation of blacks being enslaved in um, and in different places around the world, as a matter of fact. And so if we were to make comparisons, and Anthony, please jump in on this, between um, slavery in Mauritania and slavery of the um, antebellum American South, what are some of the comparisons you'd make? Well, I would start with saying that the sexual abuse and exploitation of uh, women who are enslaved is just as, as evil and vile and, and widespread in the Mauritanian slavery system as it was in the American South. Um, you know, uh, women are the property of their masters in, in all facets. Uh, women who are enslaved are um, uh, frequently raped, uh, often impregnated. Um, they can be passed around as wedding gifts, shared between members of the family. Um, and slaves in Mauritania, unless they escape through the uh, often through the help of our partner organizations, are slaves for life, and their children are slaves for life. And so you can imagine the incentive to um, 
uh, by the master to uh, have more children who will then become uh, more, more slaves and more workers. Um, so you, just as you can't separate racism uh, from the slavery system in Mauritania, you cannot separate the sexual exploitation of, of women slaves from, from the system. And you know, it, it, it should be noted that this is race and descent-based slavery. Uh, what we're talking about here on the show is not trafficking, although there is trafficking in Mauritania. This is um, the, the worst elements of what we saw in the American South, and it is – it's been shocking to me and, and everyone in Chicago has worked on this issue that um, this has been allowed to continue widespread and that the country didn't even criminalize slavery until 2007. Right. So, um, Anthony, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, you were appointed as a judge and you were the first Muslim judge in the state of Illinois when you were appointed, correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. And so... Um, Slavery is abolished in 1981. There are no laws on the books to criminalize owning slaves until 2007. You still have slavery today. Um, and Sean just spoke about the issues of sex trafficking and where, as a judge, there was a time where people who mm-hmm. were trafficked were called prostitutes. And now we understand that these are trafficked people. Can you talk about um, your work and just from a legal perspective, how you see and envision this and um, um, why you join the organization. And sure. No, absolutely. I think um, to Sean's point, the parallels, you know, as we um, celebrate the abolition of slavery in America and particularly um, Illinois being the home of Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and uh, Chicago in particular has been uh, partic- has been very supportive of our efforts to support the uh, the abolition um, organizations in Mauritania. Um, the former mayor issued a proclamation in support of uh, Biram Da Abid. Um, who is sort of the central figure, and Sean can talk a little bit about his presidential candidacy later, the central figure in the civil rights and abolition movement in Mauritania. Our um, city council has issued two proclamations in support as well. Um, uh, But the parallels between um, antebellum American slavery and the slavery um, as it's practiced in Mauritania is um, just, it's very stark. I mean, they're mm. almost exactly the same. This sort of hereditary, property-based uh, slavery. Um, and, and we were just having this conversation very similar to uh, the ways in which um, some people uh, used religion as a way to uh, legitimize the institution of slavery in America. Uh, sort of biblically based in the story of the children of Ham and that that sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. So uh, uh, they do they right. they sort of practice the the same thing uh, amongst the slaveholding class in Mauritania is to use religion as a basis to try and legitim- legitimate the the institution. So, Judge Simpkins, let's talk about that. Um, you are Muslim, and uh, Sharia is the law of the land in Mauritania, and uh, and we t- maybe talk about the ways that uh, the government uses Islam to justify this practice? So um, it's not so much the government as it is as a, as a social institution. Mm-hmm. For uh, generations, the slaveholding class has um, communicated this concept that um, 
you know, God um, has ordained you to be a slave and that the way to get to heaven is to be a good servant of your master. So it's it's a it's a it's a social norm and, and a social myth that has been established that has been um, they attempt to uh, use Islam as the basis to say um, slavery is allowed in Islam and this is and this is what God has ordained for you. Um, so you often have many people in Mauritania who um, they understand their lot in life to be a slave. You know, it's interesting because uh, when I was reading up on some of the stories, the slave narratives, um, one of the more heartbreaking ones was that um, a gentleman was able to break away and escape. And he had an opportunity to get his family out of there and they chose to stay. And as a matter of fact, they heaped shame upon him because they felt like he was going against the the status the, the the caste system the way that God had ordained it and they treated him as though he brought shame to the family by escaping and being emancipated can you talk a little bit about that Sean absolutely that that's another very sinister parallel with uh, slavery in the antebellum South the barriers for people trying for people trying to escape um, you know men t- typically are able to escape more often um, and Slave owners know that for a woman to try to escape who has children who are still going to be at the whims of the master, uh, that's truly a, a horrible situation to leave your family in. And what type of and, and what type of freedom is it knowing that your your sons and daughters um, are, are still going to be uh, assaulted um, by, by uh, the, the masters that you have fled? And people who do escape slavery, um, it's. It's often recognizable that they uh, have been enslaved and that they are, as Judge Simpkins said, in a sense violating the social order. Somebody who escapes will have no money. Um, they have not been given any education. They've been not educated in their civil and political rights. They often show up at the uh, the doors of our partner organizations literally with nothing but the, the clothes on their back. And uh, we look at slave narratives from the United States and we see what, you know, what fate – awaited people who had escaped the plantations in the South. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't as though they were readily accepted uh, in in the North. And so uh, uh, Boubacar Massaoud, who's uh, another strong leader of the abolition uh, movement in Mauritania, often says that the the psychological chains um, are just as impactful as as physical chains because if somebody doesn't know they're a slave, um, there's very little – if they know no other way – it's, it's, it, and have no sense of agency, it's very difficult to to show them the other path. Sean Tenner and Anthony Simpkins are with the organization uh, based in Chicago that's uh, working to free slaves at Mauritania and provide services for them. So let's talk a little bit about Abolition Institute, about the services you provide and the work that you do. It's it's really interesting because here in Chicago, there are thriving organizations, for instance, Sailor Freedom, who's been on the show that deals with traffic people and traffic work, free, traffic free and the work that you're doing. And so Refugee One and others. And first of all, why Chicago? What is it about us that makes us sort of, uh, you know, step up and do the work that needs to be done? And then tell me about the work that you do. Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I think Illinois uh, has a, a special obligation to uphold the, the legacy of abolitionists who came before us. You know, a lot of people don't realize uh, one of Illinois' first governors 
um, literally made the decision whether Illinois was going to be slave or free. And we can think about how American and indeed global history would have been different if Illinois had been a slave state instead of a free state. And so starting from the very early days of our state, you know, we have had we have been an epicenter of that abolition movement. And, you know, we think not just of, of Abraham Lincoln and, and President Grant, but the thousands of uh, soldiers, white and black, from Illinois who fought to uh, end slavery in the Civil War. You know, we have a unique obligation in the land of Lincoln to continue this fight uh, everywhere in the world where it exists. And, and we oppose slavery in all its forms. Uh, we do work with trafficking victims in, um, in, in Chicago, and we work with victims of race and descent-based slavery in, in Mauritania. Judge Simpkins, um, we have this racial component to slavery in Mauritania, and it makes me think about um, relations between um, Arab Muslims and black, uh, African-American or African Muslims here in the United States. Can you maybe talk about um, that uh, relationship and where it needs to go? So I think that we have to keep in mind that um, religion is aspirational. Uh, and then human beings get involved and human beings do what they do. However, when it comes to this issue, um, the uh, African-American Muslims and Muslims that have uh, uh, from other ethnic backgrounds have come together. The Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicago, which is the umbrella organization that represents all of the major Islamic institutions uh, in Chicago, both African-American and Arab and Indo-Pakistani, have all issued letters supporting what the Abolition Institute does mm. and what um, the freedom fighters in Mauritania do. And I would point out, um, just you know, speaking as a Muslim, Islam does not condone slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the religion of Islam set up a system whereby which over time slavery would be abolished. Right. Um, uh, you know, if it's sort of practiced the way it's it's supposed to be practiced. Well, there's a long history of people <laughs> yeah. using religion yeah, to enslave people. You got it, so, you, you got know. it, you got it. No one gets off scot free. Right. And that. all of the freedom fighters who are fighting against uh, this descent-based slavery in Mauritania are, in fact, Muslims. So we're, we're very proud to work with and, and support their efforts. And quickly, how can people get a hold of you and find out more about um, Abolition Institute? So our website is stoppingslavery.org. Um, also very active on Facebook. And I would make the point that um, our organization uh, is in true partnership with our um, fellow abolitionists in Mauritania. Uh, when we put this uh, show segment on Facebook, it will be heard in Mauritania. It will be spread far and wide. And we are all about uh, a, a true partnership between the two countries to eradicate slavery. We've been talking about slavery in Mauritania on this Juneteenth with Sean Tenner and Anthony Simpkins of the Abolition Institute. StopSlavery.org? StoppingSlavery.org. StoppingSlavery.org yes. to find out more. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. Krakow is a hub of arts and culture in Poland. That includes a Jewish cultural festival that goes back almost 30 years. Worldview's Jenny Friedland spoke with some people trying to shake up the scene there. 
Conversations around the term cultural appropriation have been going on throughout the United States in the past few years, but other countries struggle with them as well. The country that faced the most deadly effects of the Holocaust is Poland, where Jewish-themed restaurants and caricatures of religious Jews feature in the cultural landscape. With me are Michael Rubenfeld and Adam Shoren, who are co-directors of an arts collective called Festivalt, which tries to capture Jewish culture in Poland in a contemporary and honest way. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. So, Michael, you uh, co-founded Festivalt. Can you tell me a little bit about where the idea came from? Sure. Um, so, as uh, some people might already know, the Krakow has the large one of the largest Jewish culture festivals in um, the world. It's a wonderful festival, um, and we felt uh, we felt like we wanted to complement the festival by creating some more. A critically minded space for conversations around the complications of what it means to explore Judaism in Poland. And we discovered, my wife, Magda Rubenfeld-Kolewewska, and I had been talking about it for a while, and we discovered that we had several other colleagues as well who were feeling the same way. Uh, they wanted more critical space to explore how how emotionally complex it is in Poland to be a Jew, to be a practicing Jew, to think about memory and to think about contemporary. And so we decided to start Festivalt uh, in 2017. And one of Festivalt's most prominent projects, as I know, is called Lucky Jews. Um, and both of you are involved as performers. So, Michael, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what the project is and where the inspiration for it came from. Sure. So... What I didn't know before coming to Poland is that um, there are uh, images of stereotypical-looking uh, Jews with the kind of you know beard and, and vest and an old-style outfit um, counting money, and these images are sold on the streets. And the idea is that if you purchase one of these images and you put it on the wall, you will receive good economic luck. And at first I found it to be very shocking because the image, when you receive the image as a, as a, as a Jew, it seems anti-Semitic. Then upon learning more about the image, we learned that in fact um, people had very positive feelings about these images and they felt very positively that Jews were positive images of you know, economic possibility. Uh, and this was really fascinating to me because it was a very large problem as an image, yet the practice itself, I, I didn't blame the people, I didn't blame the engagement in the practice. And so we decided to start to make an art project that was a kind of absurd response, a response that was as absurd as the practice itself. Um, and so the idea was that I would go out onto the streets and I would dress like a stereotypical Jew. Um, I would grow my beard as long as possible. I've got a very large beard right now uh, because we're going to be performing it in a few days. And I would sell images of myself counting my own money for luck and ask people to purchase these images. Um, me being a real Jew, I could offer 100% luck versus these kind of other images of of, of kind of imagined Jews. Mam obraz, obraz, obraz mnie. Jestem Żydem. Jestem Żydem. To na ścięście. Żyd na ścięście tutaj. Ultimately, it was an opportunity to have a conversation about the practice 
um, my feelings about the practice, other people's feelings about the practice, and yeah, and start to think about how to uh, bring a more, I would say, complex conversation to a practice that had become kind of normalized here in Poland. So Adam, I was hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like to do this performance. How do people respond and how do you feel about it? Sure. For the last year, I've been a co-director of Festival, and and before I joined the team, I had been a little wary of the project. Like I thought it was something funny. I, I thought it was funny to see Michael do it, and and you know, the, these vid- he made a video of uh, uh, performing it. Um, but I also felt kind of um, that one, it was making everyday Polish people into the butt of the joke, and two, that it was just reinforcing the stereotype. That uh, even doing it ironically, but being this sort of like old-fashioned Jew who's just looking to make a quick buck uh, uh, was not was not a good look or was not a good thing. And, and so I had mixed feelings, I guess I would say, about the project. And then, really, I, I did it for the first time just because Michael was out of town and we wanted someone to do it at, at what is the the largest market for selling these objects in Krakow. And I enjoyed it so incredibly much. Something I had not expected about it was just how bizarrely empowering it felt to sort of wear this old-timey Jewish outfit, you know, with the, the, the cap, and I had like a butcher's apron on and suspenders and sell these images of myself. And I felt like I got to, yeah, it felt like stepping out of a stereotype. Um, it was this very bizarre experience that I had never, I had never really felt that way before. And it felt, I felt in so much control with how I was being seen and how I was being talked about. And I, I found ways to sort of like reclaim status in these conversations. So, so I also, I, I, I don't want to, to uh, disparage Michael's Polish ability, but Michael does most of the performance in with, with a little bit of Polish and then mo- also does it in English or does the Polish through translation. But my Polish is at a level where I can have these conversations in Polish. And so I would sort of just like from the beginning ask people um, why they were buying this or if they have one already or, or, or how, how do they know it makes them lucky. Um, at one point I just shouted like, have you ever seen a real Jew before? And one older man's look gave me a weird look and came over and said of course i've seen jews before i grew up in the jewish quarter and then he told me this like really lovely story about uh uh his childhood friend who was jewish and and, and who was forced to emigrate from poland in it after an anti-semitic campaign in the 1950s so i got to have these conversations that i found really uh fascinating um uh, uh one group of young people was from a town very near where my grandmother grew up and they told me they were buying their first Lucky Jew because it's not a tradition in the town they're from. And they bought four images of me, including these like massive canvases. That, and, they, and I signed all of them on the back. And, 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 they, and one of these canvases was going up in the, in the town hall. I don't know. There was something very thrilling about that. And I'll, I'll just say two more. I know I've been going on for a bit, but two more small things uh, uh, that I'm, I've been thinking about from, that day, from the first time I performed it. One was that... You know, even if interactions that just felt like sales or just felt like interactions and didn't really feel like an investigation into this cultural practice, I still kind of felt like, all right, like whatever, my, my face is going to be in your apartment, <laughs> like looking at you. And the other thing that I really didn't expect and that I started to experience throughout the day 
um, was that I really started feeling responsible for people's luck. Like people are buying them for luck. And a lot of people would say, oh, I don't really believe it, but it's a tradition. Or some would say like, I think it's lucky. And I like, sure, and you're a real Jew, so maybe it'll be really lucky. And I would write little notes on the back and I started, and, and, and one man had me write notes for each of his children and draw little pictures for them. And I was feeling like, I care about your luck. Like I want, I want you to have luck. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a very long <laughs> response, but that's how it felt uh, performing it. Adam Shorn and Michael Rubenfeld are co-directors of Festivalt, an independent arts collective in Krakow that looks at how memory and identity intersect with contemporary Jewish culture in Poland. They're both from North America, and now they live in Krakow. Michael, earlier on in our conversation, you were talking a little bit about how um, images that you might have initially perceived as anti-Semitic now strike you in a little bit more of a complicated way. So how do you deal with the tension between how something might be intended and how you or other Jews might perceive that thing? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, you know, I very quickly was, I very quickly when I saw the image felt hurt. Um, and I know a lot of Jews, a lot of visiting Jews who don't understand the image uh, feel hurt. They feel shocked, which then very quickly translates into hurt. Uh, yeah, and there is still something about them that's kind of that you know that still feels a little bit hurtful. Um, I mean, I would agree with a lot of what Adam has said that by doing the piece, I've been able to also feel empowered and have some agency in how the images are being used. But I think that what has been really, really important is that it's been we've been able to kind of become mouthpieces, not just in person, but you know, also like in in, in the press quite a lot in being able to break down the history of these images, uh, why they exist, where wires may have gotten crossed, and also um, really clarify that, you know, Poland is the farthest thing away from being full of uh, (laughs) anti-Semites, which is the narrative that I was fed growing up. Um, being the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Um, and I think because so many Jews come to Poland um, or perceive Poland as a place that's still incredibly anti-Semitic and not safe for Jewish people when they see the image, their response is immediately that, well, this just must be a product of contemporary anti-Semitism. And, you know, it's, I mean, the, the other thing, too, is is that, I mean, I'm, and I, I feel this, I, I feel like Adam probably feels this as well, is that, you know, we really, I think what's happening in Poland right now, um, particularly amongst non-Jewish Polish people, is quite incredible. I think the way that people are thinking about the memory of Jewish people and the loss of Jewish people um, is really quite magical. And it's something that really set the tone for me being able to feel comfortable moving back to Poland. And I think that the images, I mean, ultimately, I believe the images have to stop being made and sold. Um, Not because I think that people intend to, to kind of offer a kind of cultural violence with the images, but rather because it's just not helping it's not helping the cause, which is, I think, you know, when I say the cause, I mean, it's not helping the work, the really, really important work that's happening in Poland by non-Jewish Polish people around the preservation of Jewish memory. 
But I think a lot of people who are buying these images or who are creating these images think the exact opposite, um, which is fascinating to me because I don't think people perceive the images as – I know they, they don't perceive the images as anti-Semitic at all, and they don't even understand why uh, that might be the case with these images. There's really a lot of layers to peel back there. Adam, what about you? What do you make of this sort of tension between how an action might be intended and how you perceive it? Well, you know, um, um, it's the conversation. It feels like a conversation that has already been had a lot in the United States, right? Like we, we've already sort of been through, to, or at least, you know, in some circles in the United States, we've been through a conversation about why positive stereotyping is still bad, right? And I felt like that was a conversation I was having a bunch of times while performing this piece where people would come up and sit, would say to me, like, oh, I, I can understand you would feel bad, but, like, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to say that Jews are, are good with money. And, and for me, you know, what has felt worse about the images and when I felt worse during the performance is when I felt most like a caricature or most like a cartoon um, because it just felt like a total, like, erasure of personhood. There's a, a, a book that caused a bit of a stir when it came out in Poland last year called... Um, philo-Semitic violence that talks about, you know, philo-Semitism and, 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 like, the love of Jewishness and Jewish things in Poland. And in it, uh, Elżbieta Janicka says, uh, the, the, the philo-Semitic imaginations are not innocent. The imaginary Jew must be liked. And it's and so I feel that a lot. That like yes, like like it's interesting to talk about the positive intentions. It is. It, I would say it's not even just interesting. It's important to talk about the positive intentions. It's 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 certainly better than malicious intentions. But this is lucky Jews are perhaps a pretty extreme example of of what might be the caricaturing of Jewishness in Poland. But it's certainly not the only example. And and I agree with Michael. Like while you know performing it has given me a different perspective on it, and and while and why I. You know, I'm willing to, and I want to engage with it. And I think it's hard to engage with it when you, when, when one, when one party is made to feel guilty. I, I do agree that the caricaturing of Jews, uh, slowing down the, the sort of recognition of Jews as, as people, or of, of like real, live, like breathing, living Jews in, in Krakow and in Poland. And Michael, could you tell us a little bit about what else audiences can expect from Festival this year? Oh boy, that's uh, there's a lot. Um, Give us some highlights. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I just want to talk about um, an event that we call Remember Hevra, which is um, an ongoing artistic um, protest that we have of a local. Uh, Beit Midrash, which is a, um, it was a, a pre-war study and prayer house called Hevra Tehillim. It's currently being used as a bar, and in order for a door to be built in this bar where the where the current owners wanted it, they destroyed the uh, Aron Hakodesh or the the or the, the Torah Ark um, uh, in order to create a door. Uh, we are unclear how they were ever given a permit to be able to do it or why the, the conservator gave them a permit to do it. It's, a, it's an official heritage building. Um, and we've been really shocked and uh, outraged at the, 
the the complete and total lack of integrity that has been um, given or, or, or to this building. And as a result, we've been protesting the last two years, and this will be our third year of protest. The thing that's really incredible about this building, not only were there 240 registered members before the war and their families, uh, all of whom, or the majority of whom, were, were, were murdered during the war. Um, on the walls remain these remarkable uh, frescoes from before the war. It's one of the most remarkable visual representations of pre-war Jewishness um, in Krakow, in any, in any building in Krakow. Really, it takes your breath away. Um, and, this, and so with this, 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 this protest... And the fact that the building was destroyed uh, for the sake of really like commodifying commodifying the space uh, is something that um, we've been protesting. And so this year we're going to be reconstructing the wall, the the wall where the ark existed, and we're going to mount it across the street as a protest during the um, during the during our festival. I've had the chance to be in that building. It really is a beautiful place. And so, Adam, I know that the festival is called Festivalt. Could you explain the alt part of that? Um, talk a little bit about perhaps what it's an alternative to and how. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I was not involved in Festivalt when the name was chosen and when it was founded. But I'll say from, from my perspective, alt works in two ways. Like one, it's, you know, alternative. Um, and which would be an alternative not just to the the main Jewish culture festival, which which as Michael said is is entering its 29th year and has really changed has has permanently changed the history of uh, Jewishness in Krakow. It's really extraordinary. I, I I do not think I or many other Jews would be living in in Krakow today uh, if not for what the festival has done. But also, as Michael said at the beginning. As Jewish artists living in Poland, we wanted the space to to one like make our own art and and create our like our our own platform for art and culture, um, but also to take a sort of a, a critical angle um, and and to be less about Jewishness more broadly and more about uh, Jewish life and Jewishness in contemporary Poland. So that's the alternative part. Uh, and but it's also you know it sort of sounds like a, a token Yiddishism like I gewalt, so festivalt. If you if you change the accent, so so that would be the Michael. Do you want to chime in about the origins of the name or its alternative nature? Yeah, well, those the, I, everything that Adam said is true. I think I would just kind of what I what I would do to clarify is that um, yeah, as marvelous as the larger festival is, a lot of their focus tends to be on uh, Jewishness or Judaism from an international perspective. For, for many years, there was a very strong focus on North American Jewish artists. And in the last two or three years, uh, the focus has shifted quite heavily to Israel. Um, all, all valid points of conversation. Um, but we really felt like it was important as Adam said, that we just bring the conversation back to the local or back to this country, or just really create a space that focused on that and also focused on even like the support and development of Jewish Jewish culture, Jewish art in a Polish context. Um, and again, we've been talking a lot about how magnificent this work by non-Jewish Polish people have been, how essential this work by non-Jewish Polish people have been. So some of that work has been by the leaders of the Jewish culture festival who are not Jews, but who, you know, who are not Jewish people. 
Uh, and again, this is something that we're absolutely in support of. We just felt like the alternative is that there's also a space where art is being curated and created by Jewish people as a complement to the other festival. And the third edition of Festival is taking place from June 21st to the 30th in Krakow, Poland. And Adam Shoren and Michael Rubenfeld are co-directors of Festival, this uh, independent arts collective, and they're looking at contemporary Jewish culture in Poland. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael and Adam. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Między blokiem a fabryką smutny dom Niech pan weźmie i nie zwraca Tu depresja, kas i maca Cała sztuka się oszukać, że to lot the music you're listening to is actually by one of the groups performing at Festival this year. They're called Yiddish for Love Burns Like a Wet Rag. Thanks to Jenny Friedland for putting this piece together. It was wonderful. Tomorrow we'll hear from a protester who joined the May 1980 Kwangju Democracy Movement in South Korea. So join us for that. Worldview is produced by me, Steve Bynum, and Yulian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.